Uh, we're in chapter two right now. We started a series about six weeks ago in the book of Ruth, and uh, we've been kind of making our way through a little bit slowly through the book, and this is where we're at today is chapter two in the book of Ruth. I want to pray, then we're going to get to work on this great book. God, we ask you right now that you just speak to our hearts. We need your spirit to open our eyes, to give us the ability to see. Uh, we need you to be able to open our ears to be able to hear. And God, we don't want just simply to be filled with content and information. God, we want transformation. And we want our hearts to be moved by the gospel, to be transformed by the good news that's changed us. And God, that the gospel would have the way in our lives all the way through our lives by we become people that bring about change in other people's lives, the same way that we've been changed. So God, help us to be that community. I pray for those here today that may not know you, that may be far from loving you, far from relationship with you. God, I pray that they would be brought in by the grace and the love that Jesus has demonstrated to them already on the cross. So we just commit this morning in your hands and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, the book of Ruth, in short, is a book that carries through it this, this big theme, and I'm going to embody it in this concept of incredible grace, abundant grace that God demonstrates to his people. In particular, God demonstrates this not to just some sort of ambiguous large group of people, although God does do that through the people of Israel's history, but in particular, what the book of Ruth is about is really about two women. Two women that lost everything. The names of the two women in the book are Naomi. She's the older mother-in-law who was married for a handful of years, lost her husband. She had two sons, lost her two sons. And in the process, just before her losing her two sons, she had two daughters-in-law. She had moved away to a region called Moab, which was far from Israel or far from the region of Judea, which was where she was from. And in the process of her being away, she lost everything. Like I said, her husband, her two sons. And in the process of losing all of this, she went through this process of realizing she needed to return back to the land of Israel. And as she was returning back, her two daughters-in-law also wanted to follow her. And uh, because Naomi was realistic, even though she was embittered by the circumstances that life brought upon her, she realized that if her two daughters-in-law come back to the region of Israel it actually wouldn't go well for them. At least that's in her mind. She's thinking, there's no way uh, things will bear well for you if you come back to Israel with us, uh, with me. The reason being is because they're foreigners. Um, the region of Judea, or Bethlehem, which where she was going back to, was all Jews. Uh, they weren't foreigners. And the foreigners that lived there didn't want to live there. Um, and the foreigners that did live there typically just wanted to leave. And so Naomi had a realistic perspective that should her daughters-in-law follow her back, life would not bear well for them, let alone they would never have any hope of ever having um, get married again, let alone perhaps throw away any hopes of ever having children again. So her advice to her two daughters-in-law was to remain in Moab, don't come with me to Jerusalem, don't come with me to Israel, I should say Bethlehem, stay in Moab, your uh, chances, your hopes of finding a husband, uh, having a longer life are way better staying back in Moab. And her one daughter-in-law uh, took her advice. Her name was Orpah. She went back. Her other daughter-in-law by the name of Ruth uh, refused to take her advice and stubbornly followed Naomi all the way back to the region of Bethlehem. So that's kind of where the story's at. 
There are two major problems in the book of Ruth that we've been pointing out from the very beginning. The two major problems are food and family. Those are the two major problems. Uh, Ruth and Naomi find themselves not having any food or not having any family. Food, obviously, is very important. You die without it. Family is also very important, especially if you're a woman living in that culture back in that day. Because family for you meant your means of provision and protection. Without any type of family, be it a husband, a brother, a dad, uh, you know, an uncle, somebody who can take care of you as a man, then you as a woman who lost all hopes of having any men in your life, you would be vulnerable and you would find yourself in a place of, of grave danger. And that's exactly where Naomi was. So the major dilemmas, the major problems throughout the book of Ruth are summarized in food and family. And yet what we see throughout the book is that God actually has an answer to both of these ladies before the story's over to both of those dilemmas, to both of those problems. That God's going to answer the food problem. And he starts to answer the food problem in chapter 2, which we started looking at last week. We'll continue to look at today. But then God also has a solution to the family problem. Because what Ruth and Naomi don't know yet, and the only reason why we know this is because we have a narrator in the story that told us a secret. And the secret that the narrator tells, just you and I, that's it, Naomi, Ruth, they don't know it yet. I don't think Boaz even has a clue yet, uh, is that Boaz happens to be, just so happens to be, some distant relative to Naomi. Now, this is what's called a kinsman redeemer. I'm not going to spend any time today looking at this, but in short, what this simply means is that in Jewish tradition and in Jewish law, that if you were, say, a woman that lost your husband, your sons, everything, you would then next go to your nearest family member, and that nearest family member would either marry you or somehow give you some sort of money to buy back property that maybe you lost in some sort of a raw deal or some sort of a transaction gone bad. So you depended upon a kinsman redeemer in order to bail you out, either by bringing you back into a family or by taking care of you provisionally. So again, Ruth and Naomi have no idea that it just so happens to be that the field that Ruth goes out to in the morning to go glean on just so happens to be owned by this guy Boaz, who just so happens to be a distant relative of Naomi, who just so happens to be in a position to be able to be their complete savior. It's amazing how God puts all of this together. So with that being said, what we see throughout the book is even though Naomi questions and is challenged by God's love, what we said from the very beginning is that Naomi had found herself in really great difficulty, great suffering. In fact, a lot of Bible scholars kind of draw this connection between Naomi and Job. That Naomi is sort of this um, Old Testament version of a female Job. That she has gone through incredible suffering, great hardship. Now Naomi believes in God. She trusts in God. Even though her faith has been rocked in Yahweh because she's questioned, because in her mind, she's kind of trying to figure out, how is it? Can I go through life if, there's, if God is good? But if God is good, then how come he's not been so kind to me? Why has God been so not nice to me? So her question is not whether or not does God exist. She doesn't immediately become an atheist or at least an agnostic. She never loses faith and confidence in God as a being. But she does seriously question whether or not Yahweh actually still loves her. 
And maybe that's where some of you guys are at today. I mean, that's what suffering does in our lives. Will there be some sort of disease we find that we have or some sort of scenario that we find ourselves going through where there's great difficulty surrounding relationships we find ourselves in? For you're in a marriage, it's gone bad. You lost a child. Some sort of job is dried up. You don't have certain provisional means in your life. There's a lot of different ways in which we can start and to begin to look at certain things in our lives and question, okay, it seems as if God is a God of love, but it does not seem apparent to me in this circumstance that God loves me. And we question that. Maybe that's where some of you are at right now. That's exactly where Naomi was. But what we love about this great story is that every once in a while, the narrator of the story kind of steeps us in the sidewalk where we sit next to Naomi and Ruth as they suffer and as they struggle and we feel their sorrow and we sense their pain. But every once in a while, the narrator picks us up and allows us to see the entirety of the whole story and allows us to be able to see things from a perspective they just have no possibility of being able to see. And so the writer, the narrator, wants us to kind of live in the pain but also be able to see from perspective that God really does have everything under control. And I think the Holy Spirit, who actually is the original author of this entire book, I think would want for us to learn and understand that even though you in your life right now may find yourselves in a lot of places where you've got a lot of questions that are unanswered, there's a lot of things that may even be going on in your life, they're hard, they're difficult, they're taxing, they're stressful, and you begin to question and wonder, where is God in this? Why has God allowed this to happen to me? Why this disease? Why this feeling why these circumstances. Yet the author wants us to be able to see that even in the midst of all of this type of stuff going on, God is still always at work. Always at work. That we said this past few weeks, that behind a frowning providence, God actually hides a smiling face. That behind what we oftentimes look at where God's providence in our lives seems as if he's not very happy. That it seems as if God's not really liking us, but behind even those moments of tragedy and difficulty, God is actually plotting for your good. Do you believe that? Do you want to believe that? Because that's exactly what the story of the Bible is going to teach us and tell us to hold on to. That's what the story of Ruth is really all about. So with that being said, what we see is that God's kindness is constantly being poured out throughout, the, throughout this great story. And there's a word that actually gets used that I want to introduce to you guys right now. I've been talking about the past few weeks. I told you uh, past few weeks, every time I bring it up, I'm like, I'm going to talk about that at a later date. Well, today is that later date, and it's actually the word said. It's a really important word. Um, it's not only used in the book three different times. We'll look at each one of those verses, but it's also constantly put on display in the book. In other words, if you want to look at the book of Ruth like this, the word has said is not just something that we learn by way of definition by which we take apart and try to understand. Rather, the author, the narrator, chooses these colorful pictures to somehow summarize what God is doing in the lives of the people. This sort of picture book approach is really the narrator's way of saying, look, you want to see God's love, God's kindness, God's has said, we'll define what that is in a second here, put on display, just read this book. You'll see it all over the pages. It's always happening. Even though it's not always apparent, even though it's not always identified as God doing this, it's always God doing this, oftentimes using human channels and vessels by which to demonstrate it. So with that being said, I want to take a look at a couple different ways to understand this. Now, 
Sometimes this word can be translated in a lot of different ways in the Old Testament. There's a lady by the name of Carolyn Cussis James who had written a great book on the book of Ruth. It's called The Gospel According to Ruth. Here's what she says. We have a smorgasbord of words in the Old Testament to translate this word has said, like kindness, mercy, loyalty, loving kindness, loyal, steadfast, unfailing, or just the plain word love. These are words uh, that certainly touch on what has said means, but themselves don't begin to do justice for this powerful, richly laden word. And a lot of Hebrew scholars would agree that this is a very significant word throughout the Old Testament. It's a word that identifies God's covenant, committed faithfulness to his people. Um, we even say, like, your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. It's God's has said. Uh, your kindness is better than life. Has said. Like the Old Testament people would, writers would say, God, your loving kindness, your has said to me is actually even better than life itself because life without your kindness actually wouldn't be life, it would be a hell. So they recognize a life in God's world where his has said, his kindness is showered upon them is the life that they want to live. Scholars would agree and identify that has said is the ideal type of life in which God shows and showers upon his people but intrinsically from them, God begins to show his said through his people. It's very similar to the type of idea in which Jesus would embody in the New Testament where he would say, it's like the love your neighbor as yourself brand of love. That's what has said is. Just demonstrating kindness, showing mercy and love and faithfulness to people even though uh, oftentimes you may not necessarily think that they, they're even deserving of it, but that's what has said is. Has said is this type of love. It's not something necessarily you just simply define or you take apart. Has said is something you do more than something you think or feel. Because you might be like, ah, I get it. I get has said. Do you? Do you live it? See, God is actually more concerned not with like, oh, I theoretically get it. I understand it. I figured it out. I can write it down in a definition. If I took a test, I'd pass the test. But really, God is more concerned about, it's not about whether or not you get it, whether you understand it, whether you somehow approve of it even. God's whole ideal with regard to has said is, it's something you do. And God is concerned about it as something we do because God mirrors this same type of love himself all throughout the Old Testament that God shows has said to his people Israel, that God shows has said very powerful ways even to the life of Ruth and Naomi, which we'll see. So here's the three different ways in which it appears. Verse one, uh, verse eight I should say of chapter one. It says, and Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, they go return. Uh, she says to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to your mother's house and may the Lord deal kindly with you. It's a word literally has said, or to deal with you with has said. As you have dealt with me and the dead and with me. And so Naomi, as she was on her way back into the land of Bethlehem, uh, she says to her two daughters-in-law, look, you guys have shown great kindness to me, has said, I pray that God would show great kindness to you, has said, the way that you showed this kindness to me. So here's what Naomi's doing. She's actually asking God's favor, God's covenant kindness to be demonstrated to these two ladies that showed this type of has said to her. Uh, the second time that we see this is in uh, Ruth chapter two, verse 20. It says this. Now Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, has said, has not forsaken the living and the dead. So what happens in the story, which we'll get to at some point, um, 
Naomi, or Ruth goes out in the field, she gleans, she gets all sorts of food, and basically what amounts to this truckload from Costco. Like, you know when you go to Costco, and you come home with like baskets and baskets and boxes and boxes of all sorts of like chips and salsa and meat and all sorts of good stuff. I mean, like Costco is snack capital. Like, so is Trader Joe's, and I love it, but you come home with all this food. And this is what happens is that Ruth comes home with all of this food, tangible evidence. And here's what Naomi says to Ruth. She says, you know, bless Boaz for showing such said to you. So apparently to Naomi, her understanding as to why Boaz showed such favor to Ruth was not romanticized infatuation, which we'll come back to, but actually was something even deeper, more powerful, and more potent. It was Hesed. Hesed. Um, the last time which this word Hesed also appears uh, in the book of Ruth is chapter 3, verse 10. It says this, but Boaz, and this is, Boaz actually identifies Hesed this time and identifies Hesed in Ruth. And notice how he notices this Hesed in Ruth. Boaz said, may the Lord bless, may, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness, emphasize the last or this last kindness, has said, greater than the first in which you have gone after young men, not gone after the young men, whether rich or poor. Um, we'll come to this story just, you know, next week or the following week. But in short, what ends up happening is uh, I'll just kind of give you a little bit of the trailer version of it and kind of leave you hanging. And I won't explain any of it to you and you'll be kind of bummed. But that's okay. You can go back and do your own research on the internet. But basically what happens is Ruth actually proposes to Boaz. You're like, really? Does that happen in the Bible? Yes, in the book of Ruth. It, it, it totally happens. Ruth actually goes out on a limb in, in kind of a risque, almost potentially risque fashion and basically proposes to Boaz, would you, would you marry me? It's crazy. All right, we'll get to that. And that's all that I'm going to say to you. But here's what happens. Is, is Boaz actually hears the words of Ruth, absolutely shocked by what she does, doesn't, not angry with her, but moved. He's not shocked, like, how dare you ask me? Like, I'm a man, I should be asking you. Or, you know, how dare you ask me? Like, I didn't know you were this type of woman. It's, it's nothing like that. He's like, I can't, I can't believe that you're, you're doing it. And he's not moved because, like, oh my gosh, you love me so much. It's not at all. He's like, I'm moved by this act of said that you have for your mother-in-law, that you would go out on a limb and do this. All right, that's all I'm going to tell you. But here's the deal. Whatever it was that she does and all the cultural nuances that are attached to it, like I said, we'll, we'll, we'll dissect in the next few weeks to come. It's so profound that, that, that Boaz actually identifies it as, he says, this act of said that you've just done to me and shown to Naomi is greater than all the other acts that you've ever done. So, so what are the other acts that, Naomi, or that Ruth did? Well, the first act of said, I think, that, that Ruth did was when she was on her way back from Moab with her sighing, frustrated, embittered, depressed 
mother-in-law who is now widowed and lost both of her sons. And Naomi says to Ruth, go back to Moab. And what Ruth says is, I won't go back to Moab, but what I will do is I will leave Moab and I will leave my people and I will follow your people and wherever you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. I will pledge my life to you and I will never part from you for the rest of my life. Boaz heard about that. And Boaz says, that was an act of said." That was an act of selfless action on your behalf. There was nothing in it for you to gain. You weren't going there because you knew somehow life would be better for you in the region of Bethlehem. In fact, you knew that life perhaps would be very rough and difficult, yet because you loved God and because you loved Naomi, who felt unloved by God, you pledged yourself to her. And, and Boaz is like, that was an act of love. The second act of has said that I think Boaz is probably referencing is uh, earlier that day when we saw this last week when Ruth went out to the field and I'll read it to you. It says something like this earlier in the chapter. Verse seven says, so she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves of the reapers. There's two things that she asks for. One, she asked for gleaning privileges, which was already given in the law. We looked at this last week, but then she doesn't stop there. I mean, the law says, look, you're, you have the right to glean, but that's not where Ruth stops. She's like, and I, and I also want to be able to know if I can follow your workers throughout the field and pick up after them. She, she stretches the boundaries of the law, not breaking it, pushes the limits of them. Let me give you an example. The Old Testament law, we saw this in the book of um, Deuteronomy, actually makes provision. God says, uh, when you move into the land and People buy big properties, big pieces of land, and they begin to harvest crops. God says, what I want you to do is I want you to make provision for the people that have absolutely nothing, the impoverished. And so when your workers go over the field and um, you know, take in the harvest, God says, I only want you to do that once over the field, and that's it. I don't want you to keep milk in the field, going back every single day, you know, picking peaches, grapes, har- you know, oats, whatever it is. Just go through it once. And God says, there's another thing I want you to do is I want you to leave the corners of the field. Um, don't, ever, don't even touch the corners. So like, don't even, don't even harvest off of the corners. So here, here's the picture in the law. Imagine like a big square or rectangle field. And on the top and the bottom are corners. Now the Bible doesn't say, God doesn't prescribe how big a corner is. And this is the type of stuff that Jewish rabbis always debate, like, well, how long, how, how big is a corner of a field to be? Well, and there's all sorts of, you know, discrepancies and trying to figure out, like, how big a corner is. And in some ways, it's, it's not written in the law. So again, if you're like a legalist and you're like, the Bible says, keep the corners un, you know, harvested. You can be really rigid and you can be like, I'm just going to not harvest an inch off the corner of my, and you can be like justified, be like, I've justified before God. I didn't harvest the corners and therefore I'm righteous. But, but what if, what if, what if God didn't set the borders of the law around us just simply say, here's the minimum of what you should do. What if God sets the boundaries and says that there's not only a letter of the law that says, don't harvest the corners and leave enough for the gleaners, but what if God really intends for the spirit of the law to be what motivates us? That rather than just simply trying to see how little we can get by by saying, okay, I gave a corner of my field to God and that's it. What if God at the end of the day really was more concerned about you making sure that the hungry are fed? Well, what if there's a lot of hungry people? Well, you get to see God provide even in more profound ways. 
And here's what Ruth does. She shows up in the field and she's like, um, can I glean? But on top of that, can I follow all of your workers behind them? Stay really close behind them and I'll just take whatever it is that they, they drop. And Boaz is challenged by this because Boaz in his mind, he's familiar with the law. He's a law-abiding law godly man. And he knows what it means to live within the parameters of the law, live within the parameters of, of, the, of the confines of the letter of the law. And I'm certain that Boaz was scrupulous when it came to the parameters of the law. But here's a woman, an outsider, a foreigner, challenging him not to just simply live within the parameters of the law, but to go beyond that to simply say, look, God says, leave the corners. God says, allow gleaners to come. But that's the letter of the law. But the spirit of the law says, if someone is hungry, feed them. And here's, here's Ruth, this young lady, she's a foreigner, and she's challenging me to go way beyond what's normal, what's standard. What I love about this is Boaz actually capitulates. Another way of saying it, Boaz became a better man by capitulating to the desires of this young, ignorant foreigner who really had no idea what she was doing other than the fact that all she knew in her mind she says I want to show kindness to my mother-in-law that's what she's driven by and yet her drive to show kindness to her mother-in-law actually sets a fire in the heart of Boaz who then says I want to provide for her and this is unbelievable just Chain reaction in which God is doing an amazing work. You know, this is one of the beautiful things, I think, about sort of young baby Christians, right? If you've ever been around a bunch of young baby Christians, they're awesome. What's amazing about them is they don't, they haven't been around the church long enough. They haven't been around like church systems or church, churchy type situations long enough to know that there are certain like protocol things that you know in some circles people just don't do some people don't do or they do and they haven't been around that in some ways I don't I look at it this way they haven't been intoxicated yet by religion or by what it means to be safe and there's something absolutely beautiful about being around young Christians that all they know in their mind is they just love Jesus period like to them they just want Jesus they want to love him. They want to read the Bible. They want to be around Christians who love Jesus. They want to be around people that don't love Jesus to show them the kindness and grace of God. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter if they're whores. It doesn't matter if they're drunks. It doesn't matter if they're meth addicts. They don't really care. All they want is they want to make certain that everybody they know loves and gets to meet the love of Jesus that they have been shown by Jesus. It's all they care about. And this is in a lot of ways what ends up happening in a church. You have older Christians that have been, say, walking for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they memorize the Bible. They know certain theological arguments. They are very theologically sound. They memorize scriptures, things of that nature. But when it comes to them and young Christians getting around them, they kind of freak out. They're like, you're bringing non-Christians to church. They have, like, tattoos, and they smell like cigarettes. And the young Christian's like, of course they do. They, they need Jesus. Or, you know, not that because you have tattoos, you need Jesus. But the point of the matter is, is that they don't care. They're indiscriminate in their love. Because they don't care. They just want Jesus to be seen. And yet an older generation can look at that and be like, well, that makes things unsafe for us here. Because we've said this before so many times. This church will always be messy. 
will always have people at various stages in various places in their Christian walk all the time. Like if I were to do a survey right now, many of you, I'm certain, are young Christians. Many of you may, here aren't even Christians, and you're here. We're glad you're here. Some of you have been Christians for a long time. And when you get that type of dynamic together, what you have is the potential of people that may have grown up in a system that like things nice, neat, clean, orderly, that are not comfortable with the sense of rawness and brokenness and sinfulness that comes together in a place like this. And the letter of the law, for example, would say, and they would appeal to this, the Bible says, be holy for God is holy. Yes, it says that. And this is one of the reasons why the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of Jesus' day had a problem with Jesus. They would go to Jesus, who's hanging out with a bunch of prostitutes and whores and tax collectors and wicked people having dinner with them. And like, Jesus, don't you get it? The Bible says, be holy for God is holy. And if you're a righteous, holy guy, why are you hanging out with a bunch of holy, unholy people? And Jesus would affirm that and says, yes, the letter of the law says, be holy for I am holy. But the Bible, the word, God's spirit also says, the spirit of the law says, the sick need a physician. The dead need life. And Jesus had this way about him, which we, he just completely upset the whole religious system and the religious barriers and the laws and the rules and regulations and restrictions that hedge the religious community in. And if that's you, if you relate more to the religious older brother, for example, in the parable of the prodigal son, you may be the prodigal religious brother, and you need to come home. If you're the prodigal younger son, you need to come home. Whether you're the older brother or the younger brother, you both need the love of the father to melt your heart, to cause you to see how much we are in desperate need of God. And this is exactly the way Ruth was. She just, she had no categories in her mind of, you know, righteous, religious, holy. Uh, to her, she just, all she knew was she loved and was deeply committed to her hurting mother-in-law. Just says, I got to get food for her. So powerful was this that actually moved Boaz to be a better, more righteous man too. And actually to live more within the context of the spirit of the law even though it went over the letter of the law. Does that make sense? I think the more that we understand God's heart, the less that we're gonna be asking those questions about where are the restrictions and how can we get to the place where God is being seen and revealed in dark places? How can we be more on mission? Ruth recognized that her God was a missionary God that rescued her and she pushed the limits. She was willing to take those risks to push the limits and in doing so, actually earn God's favor, and in doing so, actually earn the favor of Boaz, and he admits that. The last thing in which Boaz says, he points out, he says that uh, this last type of said that she does is even greater by comparison, and like I said, I'll get to that in a couple weeks, and it, like I said, it has to do with this sense of her proposing a marriage proposal to Boaz, which, you know, unfortunately, I'm going to leave you hanging on that one. All right, Here's what we're going to do right now. I want to take a look at really how this grace of God is at work. And we're not going to get very far in this. And I just want to look at the first uh, element of this. Because God's work is constantly at grace. His said, his kindness is at work in Ruth's life, in Naomi's life, even though they found themselves in the midst of suffering. 
And like I said, this may be where some of you guys are at. You might be finding yourselves in the midst of real great difficulty, hardship, where there's way more questions in your mind than you have answers. There's a lot of moments of oppression and difficulty, maybe depression, maybe moments of great loss. And you're in that place of wondering, does God love me? That was where Naomi was. And the story of Ruth is really a story, a narrative that brings us into this journey, this process of how God is constantly going to be reaffirming his love to Naomi, that he's not forsaken her, he's not let her go, he's not walked away from her. So I want to pick it up at about verse 8, and it's kind of where we enter into the story. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now Boaz enters into the story, he begins to talk specifically to Ruth, and here's what he says. Now listen to me, my daughter. Do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink to the young men um, what they have drawn. And verse 10, we'll come to that in a second here, but then she says she fell on her face and just was humbled by this. Um, There's kind of three questions I want to ask with regard to this, and they have to do with Boaz demonstrating this kindness because he actually becomes his vessel which God uses. So the first question is this, how does Boaz treat Ruth? It's really kind of significant. Boaz treats her really with just this amazing sense of kindness. The first thing that I noticed with regard to Boaz is that he speaks real gently to her. He speaks gently to her, and he describes her as his daughter. Now, the type of language that's used here in the Hebrew, again, sometimes I think we read the book of Ruth with this romanticized, you know, Jane Austen concept in our mind where we just desperately want, you know, Boaz to be like this 35-year-old guy with like chiseled abs and like long flowing hair and he's just super ripped and, and this is him like in the field, he walks up and he's super strong, gets out of his Hummer and he's just like hanging out. Everybody's like, all the young women are just going Justin Bieber over him and, and it's just like, that's how we want the storyline to be. Um, but, but most scholars, I think, would agree, in fact, most ancient Hebrew scholars would agree that Boaz is probably an old dude. Probably an old guy. Maybe, I mean, maybe even in the 60s, 70s. We don't know. We really don't know. We're not given any indication whatsoever how old he is. So, so hopefully that doesn't completely ruin your little love story uh, or your wedding planning that you've already begun for you know, Ruth and Boaz. But what I want you to understand is that trying to breathe a little bit of realism into the story and trying to, to, to paint a picture that I think the book of Ruth is trying to promote and try to remove it from some of our cultural uh, lenses by which we try to superimpose over the story, making it into something that it really isn't meant to be, even though it may fit to some degree, I think personally, the more I've studied this, the more I've just kind of looked at it, that when we just, when we contort or distort the book of Ruth just to be about this love affair between Boaz and this young, dainty, beautiful woman in the field named Ruth, I, I think we actually cheapen it. We actually cheapen it. And we lose some of the really sharp beauty. And that was a loud whistle. And we lose some of the sharp beauty that I think God wants to speak to us through the storyline. So with that being said, how does Boaz treat Ruth? The first thing, he speaks gently to her like a daughter. Speaks to her very kindly, affectionately. The second thing we see in about verses 8 to 9, he actually gives her exclusive gleaning privileges. This is huge. Um, He doesn't know who she is that much at all. But he's just like, look, I know I don't know you. But I, I want to give you exclusivity to my field. Like, don't go anywhere else. You can come out here for all you want. Remember the very first, the very first big issue, problem of the book is food. Where are they going to find food? 
What Boaz did to Ruth was equivalent to saying, I'm a manager at Trader Joe's and I want to give you free gift cards for the next six months. Everything you want is on the house, on me. I'll take care of it. Can you imagine that? I can remember when my wife and I first moved up here. We were, we had nothing. Like we had nothing. My wife was working full time. We didn't have any kids. I was working at a grocery store, hated the job. It's horrible. And, and we had nothing. It was, I think, our third anniversary. And, and I, was, I was feeling bummed, like bummed for myself. I'm like, I don't have any money. I can't even take my wife out on a date. I feel really bad about this. And, you know, you know if you're a dude and you're like, you know, you want to provide for your wife and, you know, at least take her out to a nice dinner. And I'm like, sweetie, I, I, I think we can go to like McD's. Like, is that cool? Like, praise the Lord, you know? Um, I love Jesus, you know? And, and, and I feel really bad about it. And, and, my, my wife had a boss back at the, at the time, and he was just this amazing guy. He's not a Christian. And, and I dare say, if I can put it this way, he, he gave my wife and I his credit card and says, I want you to go out to this restaurant and just spend as much money as you want. That was Hassan. Hassan. He has absolutely no idea like, how much that meant to my wife and I. We didn't have any money. How much it meant to me as a, as a husband. I wanted to provide for her. I couldn't provide for her. I, was, I, I, I wish I could, but I couldn't. And yet God showed his said kindness to us through, through a non-Christian guy. He gave us his credit card and just says, go have an amazing night. Enjoy it. You guys deserve it. It's your third anniversary. And that's basically what Boaz does to Ruth. He says, don't go to any other field. Just, I'm going to give you exclusive rights to this field. It's all yours until the season's over. So seasons might last for a few weeks, however long, and he says, don't go to any of the field. The third thing we see is that he guarantees protection from these predators in verse eight. He says, um, or in verse nine, sorry. He says, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them and have, uh, have I not charged the young men not to touch you? So obviously, again, this gives us a little bit of a glimpse into sort of the life of a, of a gleaner. Um, it was dangerous. Very dangerous, especially if you're a foreigner. I mean, this is one of the reasons why Boaz would say, listen, I, I actually, I paid my dudes off. <laughs> I told them if they touch you, not only did they get fired, but they got to deal with the bow, all right? So I told them not to touch you, and, and I'm guaranteeing you my protection, all right? I'm guaranteeing you my protection. And what I love about this is, is Boaz recognizes the need and the desire that he has. I mean, he has all this vast uh, riches and wealth and um, rewards and all these types of things. And he uses them not to exploit and take advantage of the weak and vulnerable, but to protect them. Let me, let me put it to you this way. I'm going to speak directly to you guys. Men, in our culture, in the culture we live in, all of us as men, we have opportunities that God has given us in our life. We have certain strengths. We have certain abilities. Uh, there are things that God has gifted to us, things that we have. And let me ask you, how do you use your strength? Do you use strength and power and might and privilege and prestige and whatever it is that you have in your power, do you use that as a means to help the vulnerable or to exploit the vulnerable, to take advantage of them? What I love about Boaz is that he had every, I mean, if he wanted to, he could have taken advantage of Ruth the Moabite, the foreigner. He could have raped her. He could have beaten her. He could have taken her body and done something with her, even one of his workers, and it would have been not even reported. No one would have even cared. End of story. But that's not the type of man Boaz was. He uses power in a way that says, 
I'm not going to prey upon you, but to protect you. Men, if you use your place in life as a means to not protect women, but to prey upon them, you are a predator. And the only position that your heart should be in is one of repentance. Women, you may have not ever been told this, but if you have a boyfriend, someone who claims to love you, and if he's having sex with you, if he's taking advantage of you sexually, he's touching you, he's using your body, and if he throws out the nice little language of, but I love you, he does not love you, he loves himself, he loves his own passion, he loves his own desires more than you, he's preying upon your body, he's preying upon you. It's not you, your soul that he loves, it's your body. It's a predator. By definition, that is a predator. If you own a business, if you have employees, people that respond to you, people that are within your sphere of influence, if you're a dad, you have children, your job, your role is to be a protector amongst being a provider for them, loving them. Those that are vulnerable around you in your life are not there so that you can prey upon them as a predator would, but that you can protect them. And be like Boaz, who's this unbelievable figure in this story. You know why we love this in Boaz? Because we love this in Jesus. This is how Jesus acts. He loves people. I've told men so many times, the greatest gift that you can ever give to your girlfriend is not your body, it's your purity. It's your purity. It's that commitment that says, I love you so much that I will withhold giving you my body or taking your body for myself because I know that at the end of the day, if I give you myself or if I take from you yourself, your body, tomorrow will feel filthy, will feel defiled. So the greatest gift I can give to you is your purity. And rather than preying upon you, taking advantage of you, I will protect you. That's the way Boaz was with Ruth. That's the way Jesus is with his people. The reality is, is this is the picture that Boaz portrays over Ruth. The fourth thing we see is that he provides water for her. This is amazing because think about it this way. I mean, they didn't have like Evian and Fiji water back in the days. You know, you're working hard in the field. You're slave laboring. You know, you got the funk all over your body. And that was like Ruth. You know, it's like working hard, sweaty, nasty, filthy, dirty, smelly, all this stuff. And, and yet she's thirsty. I mean, you know, they had to go travel to find a well. And so here's what Boaz says. He's like, you're an amazing woman. The type of love and kindness and has said that you've shown to your mother-in-law, I want to show to you because I want you to know that you've got this endless supply of water that my men under my services will provide for you. They'll draw the water, you drink till you're full. The Hesed of God. That's it. Okay, that's the first question. Uh, how does Boaz treat Ruth? Verse 10, it goes on to say this in terms of Ruth's response. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, he says, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how that you left your father and your mother and your native land, and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward will be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, 
for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am one of your servants. So the second question I want to ask before we jump into the second question is just noticing, obviously, her response. It's amazing the way she responds. I mean, when you look at uh, Ruth's response, she's not like, well, I expected you to treat me this way. I mean, like, I am a queen after all. You know, I mean, she wasn't like that. There's no sense of arrogance or pride in her. I mean, just total humility. She was blown away by such grace. The kindness that Boaz showed her was absolutely just flooring to her. She, she was blown away the fact that Boaz would show such kindness. She wasn't arrogant. She wasn't acting as if she was entitled to it. She just was a recipient of it. And as a result of it, can be so overwhelmed with gratitude. Sometimes I wonder, sometimes I wonder if, if one of the reasons why our heart of affection or gratitude is not deeper in our worship, in our personal worship to God, I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that somehow, some way, we feel entitled to certain elements of God's kindness and grace. Like, well, after all, God, you should love me. I mean, look at me, all right? I, I'm smart, or I go to Cal Poly, or I graduated public school. God, I'm really smart. And, and we, we feel the sense of entitlement, like God owes it to us. Look, the bottom line is this, is that God owes us nothing. I mean, if God were to owe us or give to us what we justly deserve, do you understand what we justly deserve amounts to what it would be if we were to walk up to Obama, throw a water balloon in his face, flip him off, run away, shouting curses at him, and, sh- and then just running as far as we can. Whatever type of offense would come along with that or type of you know, retribution that would come along to that, it would be multiplied by thousands to God because that's how we've acted with God. We've lived in autonomy from God. We've turned our backs on God. We've not wanted God in our lives. We've sinned. That's what the Bible describes as sin. We've gone our own way rather than honoring, loving, serving, which is the just right response to a God who constantly gives to us, showers blessing and blessing upon us over and over and over again. Rather than giving that type of affection and gratitude and thankfulness back to God, we constantly on a regular basis in our life belittle God and steal from him his glory. And yet God keeps showering grace upon us. God doesn't give us what we deserve. And if God did, we wouldn't want it. And so here's what Ruth does. is She's just so humbled by the fact that, that Boaz, this well-known guy, actually gives her anything. Just, she's humbled by it. Second thing I want to kind of ask question-wise is, is why was Boaz showing this favor? And this kind of gets into a little bit of the rub of the whole story. And again, I think we've got to sort of take our romanticized lenses off for a second here and just try to let the storyline flow. Um, this is where we want a little bit of uh, romantic notions going on. We hear the violins playing around in the background. We're already making wedding plans. We're trying to find out, you know, sending out invitations for this beautiful romantic wedding between Ruth and Boaz. But, but I, I want to encourage you to hold your horses right now because for one, there's no reason why we'd even believe that there's any hint of romantic engagement at all in a story. At all. None. Um, because if anything, what I think is motivating Boaz is a sense of said. Boaz was shown said by God, kindness by God, and then Boaz recognizes this young woman who's showing said to her mother-in-law who's become 
destroyed. And Boaz wants to show his head. I think that's what's motivating Boaz. I want to throw out a reason why I think maybe this is the case. All right, I'm going to go out on a limb, on a limb of a limb, and, and, and just throw this out to you. Uh, it, it may be wrong, but I'm just going to throw it out anyways. I, I have a verse, actually, to, to back it. So, um, but again, even throwing out this verse, I just need to kind of preface all of this by saying even this verse has been called into question to some degree. So I want you to turn there real quick to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. I'm going to read you this, just this little verse um, and just see if this is not maybe what's happening here, maybe why Boaz is showing such incredible favor and kindness to Ruth. Um, here's what it says. Romans, or Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 says this. Um, this is what's typically avoided by most of you who read your Bibles. Um, and, 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 and if you lie and you're like, like no, I, I, I read the genealogies. You, you lie. You, you don't read the genealogies. You always skip over them. And uh, we're going to read a section of the genealogy right now. And uh, I just want you to listen to what it says. Um, verse 5. It says, And Salmon, Salmon, whatever, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed, and Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king. And you're like, okay, so what does that have to do with anything? Here, here's what I think the genealogy is saying and implying. Boaz's mom was Rahab the prostitute. Like, so what? Story of Joshua goes something like this. When the people of Israel came into the land, they immediately came to a city called Jericho. And in Jericho was a prostitute. Her name was Rahab. She was a Canaanite, meaning she was under the curse of God. She was a foreigner. She had nothing to do with the commonwealth or the rights or the laws or the liberties or the joy of Israel, the people of Israel. And yet Rahab actually trusted in God and was then brought into the family line of the Jewish people. And she married, apparently, according to this verse, a guy by the name of Salmon. And Salmon was the father of Boaz. And that means that Boaz's mom was Rahab. And if this is true, then that means that Boaz no doubt would have grown up hearing the stories of how his mother, a foreigner, prostitute, Canaanite, pagan woman under the judgment of God was not shunned, not tortured, not destroyed, but shown said. And as a result, Boaz, so moved by the story and the narrative of his own mom, sees another young foreigner woman who's lost everything and says, I want to help her. It's absolutely amazing. Hased at work. This is what Hased does. It changes us. And again, like I said, if that's wrong, you can challenge it. That's fine. It's no big deal. But I'm just throwing it out that it seems as if that's what the story is telling us. And if that's the case, it gives us a powerful motivator as to why Boaz was able to show such unbelievable kindness, grace, and has said to this woman, Ruth. The third thing, wrap it up with this.
is who really is the one showing the favor? Because here's what seems to be going on in this story. There seems to be a little bit of a, a duality happening here. On the one hand, it looks like Boaz is showing the favor because it's Boaz who owns the field. It's Boaz who's saying, I'm commanding my workers not to harm you. It's Boaz who's saying, uh, go ahead and drink from my wells. It's Boaz who later on is gonna say, come to my table and let's have a nice big meal. It's Boaz who's saying, I'm gonna make gr- radical, great provision for you. It seems to be Boaz who's doing all of this stuff. But then Boaz actually comes to Ruth, and when Ruth presses him, why are you doing this? And and Boaz doesn't point to himself. He says, it's because you've come and taken refuge under God's wings. So who's showing the kindness? Boaz or God? And the answer is yes. (laughs) Both. Both. That God happens to actually be using Boaz to show the kindness to Ruth. That Boaz actually is the means by which God is showing kindness to Ruth. Consequently, or subsequently, Ruth is going to be the vehicle by which God is going to show kindness to Naomi. This happens to be how God works, guys. This is why the gospel matters because at the end of the day, we love these stories because in reality, the story of Hesed is ultimately climaxed in the story of God's greatest, visible, tangible, put on display of Hesed ever. It's the cross. Listen to how Paul later would say this in Romans chapter eight, verse 58. He says, but God demonstrates his own love has said for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is Paul's way of saying, you wanna know how much covenant, faithfulness, kindness, love, commitment God has demonstrated to us as fallen, sinful, ill-deserving human individual people? In other words, how for us really is God? Is God actually against us? Is God out to crush us? Is God really angry out to destroy us? Well, the answer to the Bible is gonna say that, no, God actually has done everything to demonstrate his love. How? Because what God did, because some of us might be so quick to say, well, what about judgment? Doesn't God wanna bring judgment? And the answer to that is yes, God takes sin so seriously. And the way that God deals with sin is God created the means the way by which he can deal with sin while separating the sinner from it to set him to go free. In other words, God created a way so that sin can be judged and that the one who commits the sin can be pardoned. And the way that God did that is on the cross. And that's why Paul says God demonstrated his profound has said love to you in that while you were still sinning, still in your sin, God sent his son, crushed him for you on your behalf. God did for you what you could never do. Jesus lived the perfect life that you should have lived and failed to live. Jesus accomplished for you what you could never accomplish. This is why we call the Bible and the story of what Jesus did good news, gospel, because it's the story of a God who did for you what you could never do for yourself in the same way The story of Ruth is a story of a woman who had no means, no rights, no ability to do anything for herself, but somebody entirely outside of her swept her up and gave her provision by putting a shadow of his wing over her. 
She was rescued. That's the story of the Bible. We were rescued. This is how John, the beloved apostle, puts it this way. First John chapter four, verse nine, talking also about the Hesed love of God, he says this. In this is the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. So he's setting it up, saying that you wanna know how we have life, God gives us life because God is the only author of life. And then he says, in this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and God sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That's John's technical way of theologically saying the way that you can know, the way that you can identify the picture book, the story book, put on display. And if you ever question God's love, John says, you just have to look at the picture book. And the picture book is the picture of a cross and a suffering servant. And he says, this is how God put on display his love, that Jesus was crushed for your sins. And then he goes on and he finishes with this radical statement. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Guys, the gospel is so radically practical. Let me try to put it to you as simply as I can. If you claim to know the gospel, if you claim to be in love with God and you just simply look at Christianity as simply the means by which to get you saved, to go to some other next life, and you're just living this life, enduring with bonehead people around you until one day you go be in the next life, and you've missed the point of the gospel. It is about an eternity. It's not less than that. But it's far more than that because the gospel is about what God has done to you and showing has said to you so that then now you as a recipient of has said can now be a distributor of has said. That's the way the gospel works. In the context of our lives, that's why we have to always be asking the practical questions in our lives. What has God given me? What's in my control? What has God placed in front of me in my sphere of influence? Who are the people that are here in front of me that God has placed in front of me not so that I can take advantage of them, not so that they can be my pawns to advance my career, my strengths, my might, but how has God placed me in this circle of life with the people around me so that I can be someone who displays has said to them in the same way that God displayed Hesed to me. Hesed was the subject of many of the Psalms. I'm gonna read this last one and finish up. Psalm 36 says this, how priceless is your unfailing love, O God. Hesed, how priceless is your Hesed. He says, people take refuge under the shadow of your wings. In fact, I think the psalmist was very familiar with the story and the narrative of Ruth. Can you imagine he's just writing this, perhaps maybe reading the book of Ruth, and he's like, oh my gosh, God so loves, so profoundly loves, how priceless is God's has said that he actually extends a wing of protection to cover those that are vulnerable and those that are weak. He says, they feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of delights, for with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. And the psalmist would sing to this great God 
who provides great compassion, great love, great kindness. And the New Testament is going to tell us again and again and again of which all of this Old Testament stuff was merely a foreshadow to. It was merely sending out lines as a trajectory going out to the ultimate, final, climactic display of God's said kindness, which was Jesus on the cross. Guys, let me put it this way. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you wonder, does God love me? I don't have anything else to give you other than the cross. I don't have any other place to point you. If you're here and you're a Christian and you're like, is there something else in my life? What else is there for me? Can't we just get beyond this and go on to something else and live for, look, there is nothing beyond the gospel. The gospel is the sum total of everything. It's either good news to you or it's not. And if it's not good news to you, that's where you have to ask yourself, what's happened to your heart? Have you grown apathetic? Have you begun to just live within the parameters of the letter of the law and you've forgotten the spirit of the law? The intent of the law, the purpose of God, he rescued you, he redeemed you, he reconciled you to himself so that now you, as Paul would say, can become a reconciler to others. Because the gospel is radically practical. It, it, we're either here and we either believe it and we're moved by it and our hearts are affected by it and we just want to sing like the psalmist did to God's unfailing has said. Or we don't really give a rip, a rip about it. We're not moved by it. It doesn't affect us. So I encourage you guys to think about where your heart is at with regard to the hesed of God, the kindness of God that was put on display ultimately through Jesus. Because at the end of the day, that's what we have to deal with. How do we see the cross? Do we see the cross, the beauty of God put on display? Or do we, do we just see an event that happened? Or maybe even a non-event? The last thing is this. I'm going to have the worship team come on up, and we're going to wrap it up with this. Because God's into pictures, I'm thankful for that. My favorite Bible is a pop-up book. Someone should make one. One of the greatest pictures that God put on display was just before Jesus died. He took bread, took the cup, and he broke it, and he says, Every time you guys take the bread and you break it, every time you guys take the cup and you drink it, it speaks of my blood which should be shed for you, for the remission of your sins, washing away of your sins, your sins. But here's my body which is broken for you. And it's as if Jesus was saying, like Ruth, I left my comfort, my glory, came into a world to where all the people were marginalized, I became broken so that those who are broken can be made whole. And that's the gospel. So we are gonna have an opportunity to partake of the gospel in a very tangible, practical way to partake of the communion. So and the reason why Paul says, look, when you partake of the communion, do so in a worthy manner. I think what Paul means by that is that when you partake of the communion, do so in a way that you search your heart out. In other words, is the gospel, is it merely shining on you like a light or is it penetrating through you? Is there transparency in your life? Because my guess is that most people sit under the light of the gospel and it just shines in them, but it never penetrates them. And if the gospel is not penetrating you, I encourage you before you partake of, the, partake of the communion, repent. Ask God to wash you and cleanse you. That means on a practical level, if you are a recipient of God's forgiveness, 
Are there people in your life that you're refusing to forgive? If God's reconciled you to himself, are there people in your life you're refusing to reconcile to yourself? This is how serious the gospel is. This is how serious the set is. That God would go to such a great feat, great length, to demonstrate his ascent on the cross and then call us to follow that. It's a hard life, but it's the life that leads to true joy. Every other life leads to letdown. I'm gonna pray, we'll sing, we'll respond. God's revelation went out. Usually what we do typically as a church, we sing afterwards because it's a way for us to respond and let God's word speak to our hearts and just respond to that and worship by singing like the psalmist did. They responded to God's great love. So I'm gonna pray. We'll respond by singing, confessing sin, partaking of communion, and just recognizing God's abundant kindness to us. God, thank you for grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that helps us to live these things out in a practical way. And so, Father, even now, we confess sin to you. We acknowledge pride that may need to be crucified and laid to rest. And, Father, we just ask you that you would let the gospel not just shine on us like a light, but shine through us as if we're transparent, revealing any dark area in our life, bringing light to all of us through the gospel, through Jesus.